Have you ever wondered what it's like to perform an autopsy? Ever wanted to know how accurate your favorite crime drama is? If you're brave enough, join, join us inside the, the morgue. Welcome back to Inside the Morgue. We're your hosts and real autopsy technicians, Jess and Alice. So this week, we're going to get a little vulnerable with you guys because we want to discuss one of the hardest parts of our jobs, which is dealing and working on pediatric cases. So the CSI episode that we watched this week actually portrays what it's like to work on these types of cases. And so that episode that we're going to talk about is CSI Season 8, Episode 13, titled A Thousand Days on Earth. Let's get into it. So the first two minutes of this show are kind of unimportant to the real storyline of the entire show. And a little real talk before we jump right into the episode. Alice and I were both surrounded by death every day. There's no way around that just with our job. And we knew that getting into it. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that you learn as you continue in this field is that you have to kind of put your emotions to the side so that you can do your job properly. Now, that's not saying that we never have emotions and that we can't have emotions. Yeah, we're not robots. We're not robots. We are humans. It's just learning to turn those emotions off and on and learning when to do that like after the case is done. Kind of how I think of it, as soon as I walk into our autopsy suite, something inside me that shuts off and I'm in work mode so I can get things done properly for the case that we're working on to give a voice to the voiceless. Right. When we leave and we go back to our office or go back home for the day, I process what I saw and the things that I worked on and then I can be emotional about it. Yeah. I Even if I know it's going to be a hard day before we go into the autopsy suite, I'll be in my office and I'll send my boyfriend a quick text just to let him know. I was like, hey, I'm going to have a rough day at work. I'm kind of shutting down right now, but I'm probably going to be emotional later. And I just want to let you know. Mm -hmm. Just a warning. Yeah. You mentally prepare yourself for what you're going to see and what you're going to work on. And definitely like having that support system to talk about things and talk about your emotions is Mm -hmm. a key part into doing this job too. Yeah. And Jess and I, obviously we're friends because we do this podcast together, but I feel like we can talk to each other about these things because we know what it's like because obviously we're experiencing the same thing and I feel Mm -hmm. like the people we work with are also really great and supportive and whenever we have a tough case in the office we all kind of like come together and make sure everybody's okay we check in and yeah Yeah. having a support system is very important and there's also a bunch of different coping mechanisms that we use every day to help too and we just wanted to take a minute to address this before we started the episode So there, we addressed it. (laughs) So anyway, the CSI team arrives at a scene and there is a little girl in a cardboard box, obviously dead, and she has a religious pendant in her hands and she is wrapped in a blanket. They stand there in disbelief for a second before deciding to take the whole box back to the lab to keep it intact for their investigation. They have the scene roped off with caution tape, which is a green flag because this is a huge thing in forensics. It's securing the integrity of a crime scene. So only after this is accomplished can you actually collect evidence and ensure that everything is properly retrieved, which it will then be proved valid when it comes time for a trial. And by setting the perimeter of the crime scene, the techs working the scene save a lot of time by ruling out fingerprints or footprints of police personnel if the scene entry is limited. So the first duty is to protect and preserve the evidence. 
Grissom takes some photos before moving the box, and they take the box and the girl back to the lab. The girl has pajamas on, and they transfer her from the box to the autopsy table, and they're really gentle with her, as are we when we have pediatric cases. We're just more aware of our surroundings and what we're dealing with when we have cases, and we're way more gentle with transferring them and moving them around. The energy in the room changes. It does. I don't know how to explain it to someone who hasn't experienced it, you know? Because it's an autopsy suite. You feel it. You feel it when you walk into the room and there's that type of body on our yeah. table. The whole room is, is different. The, the energy changes and, like, it's always a serious environment because it's an, it's an autopsy suite, so we're always doing serious work. But it's, you know, when it's someone so young and it's just, it's a different energy. Yeah, for sure. And they take their as-is photos, which is a green flag. We've mentioned this in other previous episodes, and they do this before they remove the religious pendant from her hands. There is no rigor present, and they estimate that her time of death is probably less than 12 hours ago. So rigor is approximately starting between 2 and 4 hours after death, and it will reach complete rigor at around 6 to 8 hours after death. The dictation for the case then begins. The victim is female, Caucasian, approximately three to four years old, and she's found in a packing box in a parking lot. Her name is unknown at this time, so she's put in the system as Baby Jane Doe. They shine blue UV light over the box to detect any evidence, and Grism is wearing orange glasses, so this blue light is an alternate light source, and we know from color theory that blue and orange are complementary. So the visible light beam is blue, so using an orange filter blocks the intense blue light, but it passes the weak fluorescence so you're able to see any hidden stains. The box appears to be in good condition and shows no indication that the child struggled, which may suggest that she was either unconscious or dead at the time she was placed inside the box. The alternate light source reveals no blood or body fluids on the box. There are, however, multiple hairs embedded in the packing tape on the box. Grism turns it over upside down and sees a viscous residue on the underside and photographs it. Another member of the CSI team goes back to the scene now that it's daylight and they investigate it further. The man who originally found the box said that it was not there when he first parked his car. There's no exterior surveillance cameras on any of the businesses in the strip mall parking lot, and there's no skid marks in the lot either, which means the box is placed instead of being tossed out of a moving vehicle. It was most likely someone on foot who placed the box there. There's about 100 shoe prints and crisscrossing all over the lot, so their chances of finding the exact one they need will be difficult. A press conference is being held to address the case. It's an ongoing investigation, and they're not giving any more details at this time. They only ask that anyone who has information about this girl to please come forward and contact the authorities. So far, no one has claimed responsibility for the girl. Back at the autopsy, they find that the girl has abrasions on the knuckles of both hands. Abrasions are superficial injuries of the skin. It's basically like a scrape from the friction between your skin and another surface. She has reddish blisters on both palms and on her legs and buttocks. There are bruises on the back of her arms, on her back, and the base of her skull that are seen too. Photos are taken of all of these, which is important. For pediatric and baby cases, there's always more photos taken for documentation, and there's always more test run to find the exact cause of death because children shouldn't die, so we always want to do more and do everything that we can to get answers as to why something like this happened. Exactly. So in the show, the cause of death was determined to be atlanto-occipital disarticulation consistent with a single blunt force trauma to the back of the head. So the atlanto-occipital joint is between the C1 vertebrae, also known as the atlas, which is the first of your neck, or also known as cervical vertebrae. 
And the occipital bone is like the back or the base of your skull. So that's where the name Atlanto-Occipital Joint comes from. So this means because it was disarticulated means it was separated, which should not be happening. There were no signs of sexual trauma on the victim. And traces are running samples on the burns on the body, which are the reddish blisters that were found, and they are most likely chemical burns. There's blistering in the nasal passages and the esophagus, which indicates inhalation of caustic fumes. There's bruising on both arms of the victim, and there is no previous breaks or injuries to the bone to suggest a history of prior abuse. A bruise usually happens right after an injury. We see this a lot with fall cases or potential abuse. And usually the bruises we see are purple, which will happen when blood leaks to the top layer of the skin, and it's called ecchymosis. But you can tell a lot from a bruise and the color of it. So right after an injury, a bruise will be red, and within a day or two, it'll turn purple, black, or blue, as I'm sure you all know. I'm sure everybody listening has experienced a bruise in their life. Unless you're superhuman and you never bump into anything. I constantly bump into everything. I was going to say, Jess will attest that I am constantly bumping into something. (laughs) We always bump tables into our hips. We always bump our knees somehow. Everyone, there is no pain like taking an autopsy table to the hip. The corner of the table. The corner (laughs) of a metal autopsy table to the hip. Because it's hip height It is. it hurts. I like so many times. I've... I've gotten better, but like when I first started, for some reason, like whenever I would try to move one, I would always like smack it into myself. Oh my gosh, the pain. You see stars. You literally see stars. So in five to 10 days, the bruise will turn green or yellow as it continues to heal. And in 10 to 14 days, it'll turn a yellow or a brown color and will nearly be faded. Back in the show, the religious pendant that the little girl was holding is a picture of St. Jude, the patron saint of the desperate. The disposition of the body suggests contrition or even remorse on behalf of whoever did this. This may have been a kidnapping gone wrong. If she was taken a while ago, the parents may have stopped looking for her or she could have been taken from somewhere else and disposed of here. Unless the parents parents are the ones who are involved. The chemical burn agent is found to be sodium hydroxide with traces of machined aluminum shards, which is a household drain cleaner. The powdered hydroxide reacts with water to generate a near-boiling temperature, which will churn up the shards to cut hair or gunk, which leads to a breakdown of the clog, and it burns like hell if it touches your skin. And actually, in a few apartments that I've lived in, including the one I'm living in now, I don't know if it's actually technically the least, but we've been told not to use drain cleaner like that in our apartment. Really? Yeah, because it can be really dangerous, especially if, so say it's a more serious clog and the drain cleaner doesn't do the job. Someone like a plumber is going to have to come in and try and fix the clog. But if I had used that drain cleaner and something splashes up on the person trying to fix the clog, they could get seriously injured. Oh. So I know I currently where I live, I had a, we had a clog once and we messaged our landlord about it. And first thing he said was, don't use drain cleaner. He's like, try use boiling water first. See if that clears it up. If not, I'll be there to help you fix it. And thankfully, the boiling water worked. But yeah, it was something I hadn't really thought of. No, I I hadn't thought about that until you just talked about it. Yeah. So heads up, everybody, be careful of drain cleaner, which I'm sure you all know. I knew it was dangerous, but like I never considered like how it can still just like sit in your drain for a while after Mm -hmm. you use it. And it can still be dangerous if it like splashes up on someone who's trying to unclog your drain. So with many deaths that happen on the side of the road a lot, there's usually a memorial or memorabilia that people will leave at the site, and that's what happens in this show. So the CSI team actually brings a bouquet of flowers with a hidden camera in it to try and catch the killer who they believe will visit the site or the memorial. At the lab, they use a microscope to compare the victim's hair to the hair found on the packing tape. It is inconsistent with the victim's, so it's marked as unknown. The victim's hair is blonde and has a very short, dark root that is seen under the microscope. 
meaning that this child is not a natural blonde. The undyed portion of the hair shaft is 0.9 millimeters, and human hair grows at an average rate of half a millimeter a day, with a slight deviation for age and for health. The length of that hair root, her hair was probably dyed within the last 48 to 72 hours. The hair is curly, and looking at a cross-section of the blonde hair, the sheath is flat like a ribbon, but on a cross-section of the dark root, the sheath is round. So, this part really confused me. So, the girl had naturally straight brown hair, because that's what was like coming from her root. So, I'm questioning, I don't know a lot about hair follicles or looking at them under microscopes. If anybody else has any insight into this, please let us know. So, they're finding that the curly blonde hair she has, wouldn't it be still flat under... Is it just the shape that changes when you like curl or straighten your hair, or is that like down to a molecular level what the hair would look like. So I was questioning this too. So if she has naturally straight hair and somebody manually curled her hair, it's still straight hair. It's you're not changing the structure of the hair. Like the texture. Yeah. So I I, I questioned if it would still be round, if the blonde hair would still be round under microscope. Right. Like I have right now, I have naturally very straight hair, but I, I've been playing around. I got my hair done this weekend and I bought a new curling iron. I've been playing around with it. So my hair is curled right now. Does that change how my hair would look under like the sheath of it, a cross section under a microscope? I don't know. And I want to say, no, it wouldn't because your hair is still naturally straight. It would be different if your hair was naturally curly. But then I question if you have naturally curly hair and you straighten it, is it still going to be like a flat sheath under the microscope or is it going to be round? I don't know. If we have any hair experts or, oh my, I should, I should call my stylist. Like, listen, do you know about the different types of sheaths of hair? We should post a poll on our Instagram story and see if anybody knows the answer to the question. We should. Someone has to know more about this and I want to meet them and I want to know them. And I want them to answer our questions. Anyway, back in the show, it seems like someone was curling this girl's hair. Her hair was naturally brown and naturally straight, but she was found with curly blonde hair. So someone was curling her hair and dyeing it blonde. So I'm still just so confused. So we're going to give this like a maybe red flag. We're going to give it a red flag for now because it seems suspicious in the very least to me. And if we're corrected, I'll take back my red flag. So this girl was possibly abducted and somebody curled and colored her hair to try and hide her identity. So they're looking at the box now and the box is a very faded barcode. Grissom photographs it and uploads it to a computer to sharpen the image and reduce pixel blur. And this is like a classic CSI move. This one wasn't one of the worst ones I've seen. It wasn't like cheesy montage. No, but my favorite is when they see like a license plate on the security camera and the license plate on the car is like five miles away, a block and a half away. And they're like, enhance. Enhance. (laughs) And it's like a high pixel image of the exact license plate that they need. Which never really happens. This wasn't (laughs) that bad. But once the barcode is enhanced enough, he scans it to see the tracking information. At least for the pictures we take, we never edit or enhance any of them. We might make them brighter every now and then, but we always save a copy and leave the original untouched. But there are new computer programs that those in digital forensics use. Cognitech is one program out there that's used globally, and it has a blur slash de-blur analysis feature to help reconstruct and enhance license plate photos and photos of faces. Oh, as I was just like trash talking, enhancing licenses. I'm sure it's very different than the enhancing that he was doing, and I'm sure there's more steps. Yeah. So, you know, maybe I don't know what I'm talking about, guys. I don't do this kind of forensics. It is a very fascinating field, though. We're not in digitals. Nope. 
I'm not that great with a computer. You are great with a camera, though. So the delivery info gives Grissom the address for the delivery and who received the package. So the detective give the woman a house call to ask when she received this box. The woman's fiance is also at the house and said he must have thrown the box out in the trash. Meanwhile, one of the techs is going through the footage from the memorial site and another tech is using a photo enhancer to change the hair color of the victim from blonde to brown. They look through a missing persons database and there is one missing child that stands out on their database. Her name is Bashira Saeed. She has brown hair and hazel eyes. Her parents are Lebanese and are in the U.S. on a tourist visa. They lost their child in an amusement park three weeks ago. Her height and weight are about the same for the victim that they have. They bring the parents into the crime lab to identify the child, which I think is a red flag. We've talked about this before, but in our morgue and I think other morgues, family members do not come into the facility to look at bodies. So Jess or I will take what we call an ID shot before the autopsy, which is just a very clean clinical photograph of the decedent's face. And if we needed to, this would be used to get an ID from a potential family member. But back in the show, they brought the family into the morgue. And unfortunately for the CSIs, this is not the people's daughter. So they still don't have an ID for their victim. But still working on getting a match from the hair that they found. On the packing tape, something finally came through. The hair is a match for the woman's fiancé who received the package in the first place. Did they... I didn't go that in-depth into this, but I know the slight differences between getting DNA from hair. Also, they got DNA very quickly, so... Should that be a red flag? That's like a D- always a it's like that's a given red flag. Okay, we're gonna add a spontaneous red flag to that. They just do it so often it doesn't even cross my mind anymore. But that is a huge red flag. They got that so quick. DNA does not, guys. If you take one thing away from listening to any actual forensics people DNA talk, it takes a while. DNA to come back. does not come back so quickly. We understand this is a TV show and they have what forty five minutes without commercials mm-hmm. to solve this crime, but DNA does not come back that quickly. And also, there's different types of DNA. If you want to get nuclear DNA, you got to get like the whole hair follicle and not just the hair itself. I think the hair itself might have mitochondrial get DNA, but got to get the root of the hair. Yeah. So anyway, through their miracle, only CSI magic could do. So the fiancé that the hair was a match for had given a fake name to the cops when they arrived at the house for questioning. His real name is Leo Finley, and he is a registered sex offender. They arrest him and show him the pictures of the box in the interrogation room. But he is sticking to his story that he opened the box for his fiancé, assembled the vacuum cleaner that was inside, and then threw the box away. He does confess as to why he is a registered sex offender and why he uses an alias. He got extremely high one night and in the morning went outside naked and there just so happened to be 20 preschoolers in the yard next door. Why were there 20 preschoolers in one yard? Was he living next to like a daycare? Was he living next to a school? I was confused at that part. They like brushed over it. It made it seem like his neighbor just had 20 preschoolers in the yard. Right? <laughs> I didn't question that. Maybe, so I know some people like have... Not the point of the story, but still. <laughs> I know some people are like daycare workers and they like work out of their home. So maybe it was that kind of situation. They're running like a daycare in their home. So it can happen. I just, I don't know why that fact maybe just stuck out to me as I was reading it in our script. I'm like, why were there 20 preschoolers in one yard? <laughs> So they show him the picture of a little girl, and he says he didn't have anything to do with this. But they still don't believe him because he is living in an unregistered apartment under a fake name and is in violation of his parole. The box somehow ended up three blocks north and two blocks east from Leo's apartment. So did he really kill the girl and carry her five blocks before dumping her body? But then again, in this neighborhood, nobody would really notice a guy carrying a box. Yeah. Would anybody question it? I probably wouldn't question somebody walking a box. 
He was never even charged with child molestation, let alone abuse. So, and he does have a reasonable explanation as to why his hairs were in the box, and there's no evidence of the victim at either of his residences. So, he's still in custody because he lied to the crime scene investigators before. The analysis of the oily residue came back from the box, and it is in fact oil. Mostly 10W40 transmission fluid, a little bit of axle grease, and some dirt mixed in. This could be from any parking lot on the street in town, but site-specific impurity levels could narrow that search down. Wait, I'm sorry to interrupt you. Didn't they make that same joke in another CSI episode when they're like, guess what? The oil that the oily residue was oil. Yes, it was the last CSI when he got the, the taco grease the oil in his face. He was like, yep, it's oil. Was that a joke from the episode too? The I don't remember which episode came first. Oh, CSI. CSI. Classic. <laughs> So one of the texts goes to a nearby gas station that is seen from the dump site. He talks to the mechanic and asks if he recognizes Leo. The mechanic says that Leo bought a busted cylinder head and had it inside the box in question for the mechanic to fix. The mechanic took the part and Leo tossed the box outside. He came in last Thursday and then we cut to a scene showing some prisoners at a local prison. The news is playing on the TV setup. One of the prisoners freaks out and says that that is his daughter. The team then goes in to talk to him. He knows exactly who would want to harm his daughter, his old cellmate. The man told him about his wife, and when the cellmate got out, this man asked him to take care of his wife and daughter named Inez. The wife filed for divorce and married the cellmate. It's also possible that the cellmate killed the wife as well because he had not heard from her. Police and the CSI team go to the prisoner's house to investigate further. Boyd, who is the cellmate. His first wife had died of hepatitis while he was locked up, and when he got out, he gained custody of his two kids from that marriage. So maybe Inez's mother was dying her hair so she would fit in better with the new siblings, or she dyed her hair so she would possibly look less like her biological father to protect her. The TV in the house is still on, and there's food left on the table. Someone left in a hurry. Looking around the kitchen, they see a pile of pipe cleaning containers under the sink, and they photograph this. There's also a puddle of some sort on the floor. And again, they use the same alternate light source as before to look for any stains and evidence, which is another green flag, and they find a blood stain on one of the pipes. They swab this evidence, and then they do a phenolphthalein test on the swab, and this is a presumptive test that reacts with the hemomolecule present in blood. A positive reaction gives a pink color, and the swab does in fact turn pink. And I also give a green flag to all of this because this is all true and accurate. But I'm not sure if they would do this at the scene or if they would wait till they get back to the lab. Yeah, I was talking to just about this before and not at our current job, but I've done like phenolphthalein tests before. Of course, I just can't pronounce it. But I said the way I phrased it to Jess was like, yeah, I've just never done it in the wild before. In the wild. I've done it like in a lab. I've just never done it in the wild. So <laughs> That's like my only question. I don't think... She would do it right there and then. I think she would collect it and then wait to go to the lab. Yeah, but if anyone has done it in the wild for testing phenolphthalein, please let us know. I'd love to know about it. So the team finds Boyd, his wife, and the kids held up in a nearby diner. A waitress ID'd him, and he opened fire on the police. He lets the kids go to the police, and then several other hostages are let go. Boyd tells his wife to go next, and she stumbles into a sign or the wall or something, and the police, in the heat of the moment, open fire thinking that she's shooting at them, and she dies as a result. Boyd is then taken into custody, and they talk to him, and they theorize that he beat Inez and then locked her under the sink. 
One of the techs go to comfort Boyd's children at the station. The oldest daughter asks if what's happening to her father is happening because of what happened to Inez. She says that they were playing a game of hide-and-seek, their dad was asleep on the couch, the younger son was it, and he found the older daughter right away, but Inez won. She had showed her the best hiding spot in the whole house, which was under the sink in the kitchen. The tech goes back to talk to Boyd and tells him to confess to what really happened that night. Inez's death was an accident. He came home from work and fell asleep on the couch, waiting for his wife to get home. When he woke up, he asked the kids where Inez was, and the older daughter went right to the cabinet under the sink, and that's when they found fluid dripping out from the cabinet door. His wife had had the car, so he took the bus to the hospital. She died, and when he got off the bus, he put her in a box that he found in the back of a gas station and then walked it to the parking lot. He didn't want to report her death because he believed that no one would believe him. At the very least, they would have taken his kids away from him and sent him back to jail. So instead, he ran. Grissom found the flower camera from the memorial that Boyd and his wife visited, and it showed that they really did love her, and it was just a terrible accident. Another bummer ending for a CSI episode. That's a bummer. The last CSI episode we talked about, 4x4, not only made the same oil joke, but also ended on like a really bummer note. So this week, the true crime we will be discussing is the case of the Oakland County child killer. So this may go without saying, but I wanted to give a bit of a trigger warning. This case does involve several children and is obviously very upsetting and ultimately just super tragic. So if you decide not to listen because of the sensitive material, we totally understand. So please use your judgment and do what's best for you. If you don't think you can listen to the rest of this episode, we still love you and we'll see you next week. So, beginning in February 1976 to March 1977, in Oakland County, Michigan, a child predator kidnapped four children between the ages of 10 and 12. The kidnappings occurred in public places like sidewalks of drugstore parking lots, but no one saw a thing. Police believe that the perpetrator must have been someone or appeared to be someone that the children would go with willingly, like a police officer, a priest, a coach, or a teacher. And it appeared that the children had been held captive between 4 to 19 days before they were killed. The children's bodies would be found just a few hours after they had been killed in public places where they would be spotted easily. Three of the children were found smothered or strangled, and one of the children was shot. The children's clothes appeared to have been cleaned, and their bodies were also cleaned, and particles of soap were even found under one of the victim's fingernails. Because the police believed the suspect to be someone familiar to the children, Oakland County was sent into a panic because now everyone was a suspect, and this was the largest serial murder in Michigan history. There were four confirmed victims of the same killer. Mark Stebbins, who was 12 years old, on February 15, 1976, went to an American Legion hall and did not return home. Four days later, Mark's body was found in the same clothes that he was last seen in. His body was found in the parking lot of a local office building in Southfield. There was evidence of sexual assault and his cause of death was strangulation. He had two lacerations to the left rear of his head. Jill Robinson, who was also 12 years old, left home on December 22, 1976. The next day, her bicycle was found behind the local hobby store. And four days later, on December 26, 1976, Jill's body was found on Interstate 75 in Troy, within view of a police station. She was shot, and like the previous victim, Mark, she appeared to have been cleaned and was found in the same clothes that she had left in, and even still had her backpack on her. Christine Mihalik, who was just 10 years old, was reported missing on January 2, 1977, after going to 7-Eleven and not returning home. 19 days later, her body was found by a mail carrier on a rural road in Franklin Village. She was smothered to death less than 24 hours earlier, and like the previous victims, was found fully clothed. 
Timothy King, who was 11 years old, never returned home after going to the pharmacy on March 16, 1977. His body was found by two teenagers six days later on March 22nd in a shallow ditch in Livonia. There was evidence of sexual assault and he had died via suffocation approximately six hours before his body was found. No one has been arrested for these horrendous murders. And a few weeks after Timothy King's body was found, a psychiatrist that was working with the police task force received a letter. The letter contained a multitude of spelling errors and was written by an anonymous author who called themselves, quote, Alan, who claimed to be kept prisoner by a sadomasochist named, quote, Frank. Alan claimed that Frank had killed children before and was likely the person killing children now. And the psychiatrist tried to arrange a meeting with Alan at a bar, but Alan never showed and did not send any more letters. Other witnesses later claimed to have seen a man resembling John Wayne Gacy, who was allegedly in Michigan around the time of the Oakland murders, forcing Timothy King into a van. However, later, DNA revealed that the Oakland County child killings were not connected to Gacy. A woman also came forward and said that she saw Timothy King get into a car with a man in the pharmacy parking lot. She described a white man between 25 to 35 years old with dark brown hair and a shag-style haircut. He was driving a late-model blue AMC Gremlin with white tires. And there have been multiple potential suspects. I do not have the time to get into all of them, but we will link some sources. But some of these suspects are either deceased or already in prison for other unrelated crimes. But ultimately, no one has been charged for the heinous murders of Mark, Jill, Christine, and Timothy. If you want to read more, like I said, we'll be linking our sources and news articles in the show notes. And we know this was a heavy episode, and it is tragic. There are so many unanswered questions in this case. So we also decided that we'll be linking the website for the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children in our show notes. They have resources for victim and family support, including Team Hope, which is a group of peer support volunteers who have had personal experience with missing or exploited children's issues. The National Center for Missing and Exploited Children website also has other resources like a cyber tip hotline and a section to help ID unidentified remains of children via facial reconstruction. They also accept donations, so if you feel so inclined, make a donation. Yeah, this is a really heavy episode. And I know if you haven't been reading the news or like on Twitter at all, there's another famous case that we're not going to get into detail about, but The Boy in the Box is like a breaking news story right now. He it was he was a four-year-old child that was found dead in the Philadelphia area mm-hmm. in a box on the side of the road in the 1950s. And they finally have a name for him. So they also determined that his cause of death was blunt force trauma. And I, again, we're not going to get into details. It's a very high-profile case in the Philadelphia area right now. But, and it's breaking news, and we just wouldn't have had the yeah. time to do it justice, I don't think. Yeah, we wouldn't do it justice. There's lots of different parts and other people involved in the case. There's a lot going on with it, but yeah. they ID'd him through DNA, which is breakthrough technology, too, that genealogists have been working on. So that's just another... We, we think that... The CSI writing team pulled inspiration from these stories to create their show, but again, these are real stories that happen to real people, Mm -hmm. so we always keep that in mind when we talk about stuff like this. Like I said, for the Oakland County child killings, there's so many theories and so many potential suspects, and I just didn't feel right like diving into every 
single theory. I like touched upon a few, but we will link sources that get into more theories. I know there is a book called The Snow Killings by, hold on, let me get the author's name. Like Alice said, if you feel so inclined to make a donation to the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children, that will be linked. Yeah, or even any resource that will help missing children or just any good cause just I just didn't want to end the show on such a bummer note I was I like I was talking to Jess when I was researching this and I was like I almost wanted to just talk about something else because this like then I hated that it didn't even have the oh well at least they caught him like no Mm -hmm. it's we just don't know and there's so many stories out there too that there's like no answers and we so wish there were more answers and Unfortunately, in this field, there are a lot of times where you just like you see horrible things and sometimes you feel like, wow, this is like you get really down. And so something Mm -hmm. that I've tried to do or try to do is like think of ways you can help in other ways. So like making a donation to the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children or making a donation somewhere else or just helping someone. You don't have to if you don't have the means to donate, just if you can find some other way or even just helping a friend. Just I don't know. Just try to be a good person. That's all I'm trying to say. Also, the Snow Killings book, The Snow Killings Inside the Oakland County Child Killer Investigation by Marnie Rich Keenan. I have not read it, but it did pop up during my search. She has a website that I scrolled through while doing my research, so I wanted to give that book a shout out. So that kind of brings us to an end of our episode. We tallied a total of four green flags and three red flags. So in our opinion, this episode of CSI does pass in terms of forensic accuracy no matter how much of a bummer it was. But if you enjoy our podcast and you want to learn more about forensics and true crime, keep on listening. You can find us on Instagram at InsideTheMorgPod, so feel free to follow us there and DM us with any questions. You can also email us too, and we will be back next week for a brand new dissection. Bye! Bye.